All right, let's do this. Let's do this. After a last sip of coffee and as you get settled in your seats, we are going to open the eternal, life-giving Word of God. Father God, now as we turn our attention to you and what you have to say about life and what makes it work and what doesn't work, we pray that we would lay down our defensiveness and understand that there, but the grace of God, go us as well, God. There's a little Pharisee inside of every fallen heart. So help us to heed these words that you have uh, directed at your opponents. Lord, may anything you name among a godless Pharisee not be found in our own hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So yeah, lots of strong language here in the latter portions of the Gospel of Matthew as our Lord Jesus is confronting the religious corrupt leaders uh, here and it kind of reminds us of one of the more striking of all the Proverbs. I mean, it seems like a great paradox to us. Uh, It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. That's in chapter 27 of the Proverbs. And not normally how we see things. We tend to see just the opposite. We who really avoid woundings and prefer kisses, right? We think all hard words have to come from foes. But actually, hard conversations are pretty important And harsh words are helpful and at times even life-saving and in fact come from the lips of friends who love us as we see here in Matthew 23 because the Lord loves everyone and wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, even these religious bad guys that we meet once again here in Matthew 23. The Lord of love is trying to get through to some pretty hard, stubborn hearts here who are hopelessly lost. Uh, The Bible says it's the truth and nothing less than the truth that makes us free. As Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John chapter 8. Even though the truth can be most unpleasant to hear at times, as I'm sure is the case for the Pharisees who are on the other end of these harsh sayings. And so uh, the Lord, the friend of sinners, is trying in love to save the Pharisees from certain death, really. And so, yeah, they are self-righteous guys that need to know the grace of God. And so here's a little um, divine intervention, if we can call it a session of tough love, uh, really, and uh, he's warning the crowds lest they follow and be led astray. And then now he's going to turn his attention to the perpetrators and blast them, try to blast them out of death and into life. These are going to be Jesus' last words in public. Uh, three and a half years of his ministry of preaching and healing and doing good uh, has come to an end because we are in Passion Week. We are two, two days from the cross, which is Good Friday slash Passover. And Jesus will need to lay down his life. It's the reason for which he came, the reason he was born, was to lay down on that cross and bear the sins and pay the ransom for all sinners. And so uh, since it's only two days away, he's going to withdraw from public ministry and, and concentrate on the uh, disciples and prepare himself and them uh, for what's to come. And so uh, before he heads up the hill, which is the Mount of Olives, uh, where no doubt they are staying the week at Mary and Martha's place with Brother Lazarus there, um, before they head for the Mount of Olives, uh, he's got something to say. And he closes out his ministry with words that are not so pretty, but wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so it's really a spiritual call to these guys to wake up and smell the spiritual coffee. And uh, the context as we get underway, as I said, really we're in the middle of the dress down and it's dreadful 
and the warning. And so here's what he said so far in the opening 12 verses, a warning to the crowds uh, saying, really, be on your guard against these uh, fakers and phonies. He exposed them and he said, these guys are not your friends. Uh, They create heavy burdens. They make your life a lot harder uh, than uh, any help. Uh, and so, uh, and for heaven's sake, don't imitate them because they don't practice what they preach. It's all a show. It's all about them, their fancy titles, their seats of honor. Uh, they seek the praise of men, not the approval of God. So stay clear of them, right? And now, just as you think, you know, it can't get any more intense, he turns up the heat. And as I said, he sets his sight on the bad guys themselves. And we go from warnings to woes. And the reason we call them the woes is because he will give seven indictments against them, and he begins each one of them with a woe to you. And so let's check out the first couple woes. Woe to you, number one, scribes, you teachers of the Bible, the Old Testament, and Pharisees, you fakers, you pretenders, You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe number two. Woe, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you phonies. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. I wanted to say, whoa, right there. <laughs> whoa, indeed. Now, look, you know, you know, and I mentioned this before, a lot of people will say, you know, I'm, I, I'm not into the Old Testament, and, and I'm not into the New Testament and the Apostle Paul's theology. I just stick with the words of Jesus. And I always say, I don't think you know all the words of Jesus because they're really rather um, intense. Yes, there's a lot of love and there's a lot of grace and there's a lot of, you know, and, and here we have a lot of slapping, the smelling salts, I've been calling it the spiritual defibrillator, you know, shocking somebody out of harm's way and sometimes that's what it takes, right? And so that's what we see uh, going on here with the first two woes really are about hindering salvation, not helping as a man of God, <laughs> and, and secondly, serving themselves instead of serving God. And so that's really what's going on here. And so we're going to dive in uh, this morning. I, I think, first of all, he's really trying to get their attention. He does call them blind five times in this chapter uh, to let them know, look, there could be something that you're not seeing, that you need to see so that something terrible doesn't happen to you? Is it possible that you're blissfully unaware of your behavior? So let me show it to you, and that's exactly what the Word of God does. Whether it's spoken or written, it does the same thing. The Word of God is sharp and alive and active. It's living. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, Hebrews chapter 4. It penetrates deep into your soul and it exposes and judges your thoughts and the attitude of the heart. So here they have the audibles, the audible word of God. And it's doing just that. It's saying, hey, look, let me show you what's deep inside your heart so that you could turn from it and be saved because he loves them. Verse 13 opens up here with woe. Now, uh, you know, it, woe is a very Jewish, very Old Testament word that expresses regret, judgment, and compassion. So Jesus is not rejoicing in any way of these guys' impending doom. In fact, he's going to cry some tears at the end of this passage. And so, yeah, woe is indeed a verdict of terrible things to come, of judgment, well-deserved judgment. Uh, But it's also an expression of sorrow as well. So it's as if he's saying, how sad, how pathetic, how sad and needlessly tragic to see you guys destroy your lives in such a dreadful way. That's what he's saying. 
So this is in keeping with God's heart as he expressed himself in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 where he says, as surely as I live, I swear, says the Lord, I take zero delight in the death of the wicked rather that the wicked would turn from their evil ways and, and live. Turning, repenting, having a change of heart that saves your soul. That's his heart, you see? So... Jesus would rather they turn to him and find mercy. He's not afraid to risk wounding their feelings uh, if that means saving their souls. And so, yeah, so uh, here we go. He says, you know, um, really, if you don't turn, you're going to perish. And that's really uh, the culmination. It, It will come later in our passage, but that's exactly what he's trying to do. So first indictment, number one, you're blocking people from the gates of eternal life. You're not helping them get in. You're standing in the way. You're a detriment. Because of your own resistance to the truth, you're fostering that in others. And so, yeah, and and here's the hypocrisy of that. Everything about you says otherwise. You know, you're guilty of false advertising. Because your title, your clothing, your phylacteries, your tassels, every place you go, you're saying, follow me. I can show you the way to, to life and light and truth. Uh, and, but instead of opening the doors of enlightenment uh, and heaven and eternal life, you're slamming the door in their faces. These are shepherds that would lead the flock right off the cliff instead of safely into the barn. So uh, commentator Clark said that these guys used to carry around a key in their pockets. And the key signified that they had the key to the knowledge, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is playing on that, saying, you, you guys are the locksmiths that come out and lock people in. You don't help open doors, you lock them shut. And so they might say, how do we do that? How are we locking people out? Well, number one, you yourself don't know the way. So how, if you don't know how to get there, and you've never been on the road yourself, how are you supposed to guide people that way? Secondly, you know, instead of giving them spiritual direction and the truth of God's word, you're giving them some kind of silly man-made religious nonsense, a bunch of jargon and rules and regulations that can't save a soul. They're based on worldly philosophies and human sensibilities. So he says the big thing really is is that they are the revered spiritual religious authorities and Jesus claiming to be Messiah. So what are the religious authorities saying about the claim? They are saying in front of the crowds, two thumbs down, he's not the one. And so those who revere them and are wondering and being drawn get turned away at the door by those who are supposedly... Uh, the experts in the subject. And so, yeah, um, Jesus also points out here this little phenomenon uh, that we also see alive and well today in false teachers. He says, you yourselves forfeit eternal life. You turn down a great invitation to heaven. Strangely, that's not enough for you. You're not satisfied just declining heaven for yourself. it becomes your mission then to that nobody else take advantage of that opportunity. So it used to be when somebody would abandon the faith, a faith which they never really connected with to begin with, uh, and they go their way, they deny the Lord, they succumb to temptation, and they fall away. They used to just disappear, as I've said many times from this pulpit, and go on their merry way pursuing worldly aspirations, sinful pleasures, and their newfound freedom and their new joy of enlightenment, right? And, and they would disappear down the broad path that leads to destruction that many take. Today's mentality is, if I'm not going by doggies, neither should you. You see? And so now they actually recruit 
people. They're a voice against Christian orthodoxy. They present testimony and, and bring up confusing things and so-called controversies uh, that undermine the tenets of sound biblical teaching. It's, and they sort of are devangelists, all right? They are <laughs> evangelists in reverse, you see? And so, and, and I have down here, maybe the motive is this, that, you know, the false notion, safety in numbers, you know, the more rejectors of Orthodox Christianity, the more people who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah uh, around me, like-minded people, maybe that will help you know, quiet down the nagging fear that God gives all sinners. The nagging fear that you're risking your eternal soul and you possibly could be wrong. But not if I have more and more people around me who agree with me. So that, you know, the idea is safety in numbers, as I'm saying here. So, which sort of leads nicely into the next woe and explains a little bit of why they would go after um, over land and sea to make one convert, you know? So he's really, the heart of this next woe is you're in this for yourself. You're not serving God, you're, you're serving yourself. So verse 15, you, you fakers, you frauds, you phonies, um, you spare no expense, you travel far and wide to do whatever it takes to win one person to you, to your view to Pharisaism, not to the Lord. And that's what makes it hypocritical, is, is that you're saying, I'm a missionary for God, but in fact, it's all about a notch in your belt. It's all about a trophy. It's all about, and it's so funny because you could be talking in today's terms about followers. You see, in fact, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, Paul outs who he calls the Judaizers, who were supposedly Christians who are running around trying to make everybody Jewish. And he says, they're not interested in you. They're interested in the numbers. They want disciples to follow them. You see? Now, isn't that amazing? I mean, they want followers. They want numbers. So followers, virtual, social media, thumbs up, subscribing, monetizing the site, and all of this, it happens. They're making followers after themselves for uh, illicit gain, but not for the glory of God. And he adds this terrible footnote, doesn't he? Some of your converts wind up outperforming your own wickedness, treachery, and harmful influence. And they become twice the sons of hell as you are. Now, what does he mean by sons of hell? Well, he's described, he's nicknamed or coined uh, a place of eternal torment that he calls the garbage dump. That's what the word means. And um, he says it exists, Jesus does. Jesus is under the impression that it's a literal place of torment. And uh, to call somebody a son of that place, uh, Hendrickson, the commentator, uh, I, I uh, have here, he said a person, a son of hell, is a person belonging to, worthy of, or headed for the place Jesus labeled hell. Now, three implications from the fact that there's a literal hell. Number one, sin must be infinitely more serious than any of us realize. Number two, God must be infinitely more holy than any of us can imagine. Number three, Life as a human being and the choices we make must be significantly greater than any of us could ever know. Those are my three takeaways, uh, knowing that Jesus warns us there's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. Now the principle of handing the baton to somebody and them running twice as far and twice as fast having twice the influence, then us can go good or bad. And it's our prayer that as we pour into our kids, into our people who are discipling, everybody's sort of discipling and pouring into somebody, that they will be more gifted 
and more effective and more holy and more godly than we could ever hope to be. And, and if they go sideways, let them go sideways in spite of our good teaching and our sound lives. Amen. So woe number three. Woe number three is a good one here. Woe to you blind guides. What a funny picture. You know, somebody's like, follow me. And he's got a seeing eye dog. You know, it just doesn't work. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is great. By the way, the word there is not moron. Uh, from the word moros, where we get moron, Jesus doesn't call them morons. That word means lacking sense. Lacking the sense, pushing aside sense that's right in front of you and pushing it aside and embracing folly. That's what the word means. Just it sounds harsher. So if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, oh, you're bound. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? He has another example. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if you swear by the money, the shekels piled up on the altar. Oh, now that's another story. You're going to have to keep that promise. You blind men, which is greater, the gift? Or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Let's talk about oath-taking. All right. So uh, blind, 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 you, you see. Just, just really sad. Now, the picture here is the hypocrisy is you're saying, hey, follow me, I'll show you the way. And all the while, you can't see out of either eye. Now he says, if that's the case, he says, the blind leading the blind, he says this earlier in Matthew 15, both of you will tumble into the ditch and it won't be very pretty at all. Now he might be saying, or they might say to Jesus, how are we blind? Let me give you two examples, all right? So as clergy, as supposed representatives of God, you teach people to lie, to be dishonest. You encourage that. So that's the height of hypocrisy for somebody in your position, you see. So here's some cultural background necessary to understand this. As in most cultures, they had a really uh, intricate system of swearing oaths uh, there in the first century of Israel. Now, and I have a big smiley face here before I say this, so you know. Since we're all liars, we cannot be trusted. We need something to help people believe us on the rare occasions when we're actually being totally honest, all right? Do you see the smiley face didn't help you at all, did it? <laughs> now, uh, what I'm saying is, you know, it, it's funny, even the new little saying that I, I like saying, I say it, not going to lie, I just love that dessert, not going to lie, like I usually do, you know, that's exactly what we're saying, not going to lie, you know, I like my new job, <laughs> yeah. you know, okay, whatever. Uh, so, so here's what we do, we have to swear to let people know, this time I'm telling the truth, all right? And so we cross our heart and hope to die. We swear to God, now who would lie to God? You know, I swear on my life. And then, poor grandma, I swear on my grandmother's grave. <laughs> what are you gonna bring grandma into this for? You're lying shenanigans, you know? What did she ever do to you to deserve that? Oh my goodness. And then you lie and break it. What does that say about your love for grandma? It means you love your lies more than you love your grandma. That's what it says there. So now, we, we, here's the problem. Even when we swear, we need a way to get out of the, 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 the oath. Now, how can we do that? Well, we learned as kids. 
so I, I have a distinct memory of this in junior high with my sibs, three of them. And, and something like this happened. You know, it was like, yes, okay, I'll, I promise I'll pay you back out of my allowance, you know. And, but my, my arm was behind my back, right? And what was I doing back there with my hand? What was I doing? Do you tell me, everybody? How, how do you all know? How do you all know? Because it came in handy, didn't it? It came in really wicked handy, as we say in New England. Yes, it did. Why? Because you know what? And then when it came time to pay back my siblings, hey, pay me back. You promised. And then I said, I don't have to. I had my fingers crossed. <laughs> and then they would say, oh, man, they'd accept it. <laughs> they'd accept it. You see, now, the, the Pharisees found a way to cross your fingers when you make a promise to God. And here it is. Swear by the lesser thing, not the greater thing, and you'll find the loophole you're looking for. Oh my goodness. So uh, here are two examples. If you merely swear on the lesser name of the temple, I swear on the temple, which we recommend, it allows you some wiggle room. But choosing that option, you should. Uh, you should avoid the more, the more severe oath, swearing by the gold in the temple. If you do that, you're pretty much bound. And, and in the same way, if you don't plan on keeping your word, we recommend invoking the altar of the temple. Now, it's the lesser sacred, right? Instead of the more serious oath by invoking the money, on the altar. So Jesus uses the time to correct their twisted thinking, and he says, you foolish people, which is greater? The rock from the ground, the dirt, the dirt, or is it that it, the rock happens to be in the temple of God? And because it's in the temple of God and associated with God, the dirt becomes sacred which is greater, God or the gold? And they said, it's the gold. Why? Because that was truly their heart. They served not God, but money. And so, you know, our loves, the things we worship truly down deep have a way of bubbling up to the surface and coming out in the ways we think and by the standards by which we live. And so that's what was going on there. He says, um, boy. And then he, 20, 21 and 22, it's like, look, if you're going to swear and make an oath, just so you know, God's listening. He takes no delight in fools who would say, I swear something and then not do it. He just says, you're, you're setting yourself up for a, for a pow-pow, you know. If you'd prefer n not being chastised, then he says, how about this? Here's a novel idea, Matthew chapter 5. How about letting your yes be yes and your no be no? How about if you just tell the truth all the time? Because if you just tell the truth all the time, guess what? You don't need an elaborate system of swearing. You don't have to go, no, really, I swear, I swear, I swear. Nope, you won't need that because guess what? Everything that comes out of your mouth is true. He says, I highly recommend that. So woes number four and five here. Let's just go with woe four because it's a fun one. Woe to you, Pharisees, you pretenders. You tithe. You give a tenth of your spices down to the mint, the dill, and the cumin seeds. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law doing the right thing, loving people, being faithful to God. You should have practiced the, the latter. It's okay to tithe. You should tithe without neglecting what's more weightier. You blind guides. And here's a picture of what you're doing. 
You strain out a nut, but you swallow a camel. Though I got to explain a little bit of cultural things here, and most of you have heard this uh, before. Here's what he's saying. You legalistic people, you like to major on the minors and minor on the majors. Your focus of life is skewed. You're out of whack. You live in, in a fun house with distorted mirrors. You, don't, you can't understand what's important and what's not important. Because why? The most important part of the puzzle is God. And if you don't have the most important piece of the puzzle in your life, you have no standard by which to measure anything of importance. You have no scale. You see? And that's what's going on here. Tithing. Old Testament law commands Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, required Israelites, God's people, to support God's work. And the way they did that was a mandate of 10%, but actually there were three tithes, and it totaled about 23%. Uh, But let's go with the 10%, because the word tithe means 10%. So they would take their crops, 10%, 10% of income and revenue, 10% of livestock, and they would support the temple, the ministry, the Levites who ministered in the temple, the building, the facilities, the grounds, all of that, uh, like we've been doing, we've been doing for 3,400 years. Never a penny from anywhere else, only the people of God. Every church and every synagogue for 3,400 years, all of them, without exception, exist by the giving of God's people. Now, in the New Testament, right here, Jesus checks and says, tithing's good. He's come to bring a new covenant. And he says, tithing's good. You should do it. However, further theological teaching in the New Testament um, is a gracious approach to God's people that says you can start tithing. It's a nice training wheels. It's somewhere, right? But really, it's to be based on your income, based on your giftings and your callings, to determine in your heart, Paul says, determine it in your heart before God how much you want to give. And that may change through seasons in your life. But he says, know this, God loves a hilarious, generous giver. And know this, and I'm quoting him. He says, so sparingly, reap sparingly. This is a spiritual principle uh, that we don't talk about unless it comes up. And here it is, tithing. And so these guys were meticulous tithers. Interesting. You know why? Because it's easier to write a check and it's either easier to tithe down to the penny than to be generous or, or to write a check, put it in the box. But Jesus says, I would like you to put your heart and your ambitions and your mind in the box. That's more important. So they're good at tithing down to $96.73.5. All right. But when it comes to being generous, the weightier matters. No, it's it's, it's much easier to do than to be. And these guys have got it. So what are they doing? They're taking out their garden herbs. And it's seed time. So they're, they're gaining the seeds, right? So in front of everybody, because they, want, they only do things to, be, to try to impress people. Look at me, how much I love God. I, I tithe down to my herbs in my garden, people. One seed for me, one, two seeds, three seeds, four seeds for me, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One seed for the temple. Next, one for me, two, three, four, five. See, and here's the problem. He says, you're really meticulous with the small thing. And I'm not saying don't do the small thing, only do the big things, do the small things. But don't justify yourself and say, look at me. I tied right down to the last penny. If I find a dime, I'm going to make sure to tie the penny on it because I love to tithe. Praise me. I mean, God. (laughs) 
He's saying, justice, how about doing the right thing? How about helping the weak, abstaining from your sin, obeying God's commands, being honest and self-controlled? Mercy, showing people kindness that don't deserve it, letting people off the hook, not holding grudges, but cutting slack, being gracious with difficult people, overlooking offenses. How about that? How about your love for God and your faithfulness to him, loyal to him, true to him, guarding him to be your first love? Those are the weightier matters indeed. And he said, here's what you guys look like. So he said, you guys are kind of like the guy who strains out a gnat but swallows a camel. These guys were under kosher dietary restrictions. Part of uh, the naughty list was an insect without hopping legs. So that would mean a gnat. So God forbid in their thinking that they swallowed inadvertently in a microscopic larva of a gnat in their water. So what they did was say, we love God so much. And gather around. Uh, we'll show you how much. <laughs> they take cheesecloth or whatever it is, a sieve, and they'd strain out their water and say a prayer. May you help me not to defile myself by swallowing a gnat. And they strain it out, and it goes, very good. You strain the gnat out, and then you swallow a camel. Now, the camel is a very large mammal. And so you, you've got somebody so happy they didn't swallow something microscopic and went through all of this elaborate detail not to, uh, not to transgress in the tiniest microscopic way. And then they swallow a camel. And you get the hairy legs sticking out <laughs> of, the, <laughs> of the mouth. So what, what's that like? That's like the guy who says... I never, ever, ever drive over the speed limit. When I hit 55, it's 55. It's not 55.3, sinners. It's 55. Sometimes I even go 54.9 just to be safe. And then he drinks three beers and smokes a joint and gets behind the wheel and swallows the camel, you see? Because while he's driving, he still keeps it at 55 miles an hour. So he says, yeah, don't do that. The next one comes out this way, uh, 25 through 26, and then 27 and 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind, blind, blind. First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. The next one's kind of like it. Woe to you, Pharisees, you fakers. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and everything rotten. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Let's go back to 25 here. He says, now, you're like, you guys remind me of somebody who's all about polishing the outside of the, after you have a dinner and you're doing the dinner dishes, you pick up something that had, you know, schmutz and all kinds of stuff. You know, there's nothing worse than some of your dinner dishes. I just find them just like, wow, that is gross, you know? And so you're like the guy who takes the plate with the leftover aju mixed with all the salad dressing and the all the yuck, and you're like, polishing the outside and you put it away in the cupboard making sure it's polished on the outside and all cleaned on the outside but with the schmutz on the inside by the way schmutz is a Jewish word it just, it just means schmutz I mean you know 
He says, who, who does things like that? Why, why would you do that? You see? And so before we get down on the Pharisees, you know, one writer, all of the writers were saying the same thing. Let's not point our fingers at them. We who spend massive, imbalanced efforts at the outward appearance and very little by comparison to our spiritual hearts before God. So, you know, I googled around. Women, you take 44 minutes to an hour to get ready in the morning. Men, take five minutes <laughs> to a half an hour to get ready. But if you add up the time of washing and laundering and styling and the clothes and the accessories and the hygiene and the teeth and the hair or the shine um, <laughs> and the dieting and the working out and the kind of car and the kind of accessories and everything that is purposely done to communicate from the outward of who we are and compare that to what we do to increase our godliness, change our attitudes, abstain from sin, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the scary thing is we learned from when Samuel sent uh, was sent by God to anoint one of Jesse's boys to be king. He arrives at the house and he's got seven sons right there. And he says, walk them by me. The Lord will show me. And so they all seven walk by and Samuel picks, oh, that guy. He's the tallest and he's the best looking. And he's the well, most well built and the Lord says, wrong. I rejected him because I don't look at what you guys look at. You guys look at the outward, but God looks at the heart, you see? So to, to, to make sure to spend so much inordinate time on what people see on the outside was their greatest sin. And he said, you guys should, should how about half the time how about a quarter percent of what you do on the outside and all the work at the gym and all of that? Just take a little smidgen of it. What if, you, what if we all worked as hard as we do and as long as we do on the outside, on the inside? We would be very different people. And so, yeah. Um, he says, when I look inside you guys, I just see rottenness. But I've got a verse to change all that. Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord, by the prophet you guys love, or say you love, you Pharisees. Though your sins be stained like scarlet, though you have schmutz upon schmutz inside that heart of yours, it'll be all wiped away, uh, white as snow, clean though they are red and stained like crimson, white as wool. He said, just reason with me. Come on, let's get the inside done. We get the inside and the outside will take care of itself. So yeah, very good. And I think that we have an, uh, yeah. I'm going to sum up uh, the last part here. The last part, go back, yeah. So. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I often would long to gather you and your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you're not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said it the first time on Palm Sunday, which is three days earlier. And he says, heads up, y'all going to be saying that again, but at my second coming. So that's, it's, that's beautiful. So let me, I'm going to go ahead and we can keep these, these verses here, but let me sum up the last woe and some of his harshest words. Just for the sake of time, I'll sum them up for you. Okay, here's what he says. 
in verses 29 through 20, uh, 36, if you're taking notes, he says, oh, you guys are just like your fathers. And he says, you guys are blood related to the men, you're their, their grandchildren, who killed the Bible heroes. And, and you like to pretend that if you lived back in the day, you wouldn't have done that. So he says, you guys decorate their, their tombs and you build monuments saying, if we were there, we would have never done that. Just kind of like we do. Like if I was at the Last Supper, I wouldn't be fighting about how great I want to be and who's the greatest. Or if I was warming my hands by the fire like Peter was and a girl asked me, hey, are you one of his disciples? I would have said, yeah. You got a problem with that? You know, no, 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 no. I don't think so. Especially if you really think you would have. You're probably worse off than Peter in his denying. And so he says, no, no, you're biologically related. And the reason we know you would have killed them is because they spoke of me and the way you want to kill me. And they spoke of me. Then we know the way you're treating the living prophets how you would have treated those in the past. You would have killed them too. And so here's where he says, come on, do it. And he says, bring it. He says, know this, it's gonna, it's gonna bring destruction on you. But if you haven't turned in three and a half years of preaching and teaching and miracles, and these words haven't gotten through to your heart, bring it, because this is gonna work God's plan. So go ahead, step up and do what your fathers have done throughout the ages with the crowning glory of killing the entire fulfillment of the Old Testament right here. And he says this, and here's the last pal. He says, you brood of snakes, you little nest of vipers. And here's the line, the most harsh he's ever spoken. How will you escape being condemned to hell. Now, one commentator said, harsh, yes, yet most helpful, perhaps. And here's what he was suggesting. He was saying, was it those very words that knocked the wind out of Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. But after Jesus' death, Nicodemus shows up with a boatload of anointing spices, burial spices. Uh, so instead of saying knock the wind out of him, maybe those words in Jesus' laser focus knock the wind into him, the wind of the Holy Spirit. Or how about Joseph of Arimathea, who was standing there, who heard, how are you going to escape? You're going to hell, man. Do something about it. Is that when Joseph of Arimathea, who was a ruler on the council, got pushed over. And is that why he shows up at the cross and takes Jesus' body off the cross himself and brings expensive anointing spices as well? One writer said, look, sometimes the only thing that dislodges a sinner from his sin that damns his soul is the reality of a place called hell. They're like, look, <laughs> love the honor, love the title, love the illicit gain. I love the, the thrill of my sin, but I don't love it that much. I do not love it enough. And this is what most people in this room, you came to this place. I love my sin. Everybody loves their sin. But what the difference between us and those who are perishing is we don't love it more than we value our own souls. And somewhere, somehow, by the grace of God, we did this. Okay, the thrill of my sin and doing things my own way and perishing forever. Hmm, you know what? I'm going to go with God on this one. And to our delight, it turned out to be actually joyful and actually more fun than any dark deed we've ever done. It's nothing like righteousness. So he ends on an upbeat note, thankfully, uh, that he says, look, 
I wanted better things for you. I always want better things for you. He says, like, and he, and he uses the metaphor of this mother hen with the obvious meaning of protecting, of nurturing, and loving. That's what he wants. Now, I saw this little clip just recently. I wasn't even looking for it. It just popped up of this natural, National Geographic, uh, a green, ugly snake hanging off of a branch. And there were the, these nests, like they looked like bees' nests, but they're birds' nests. And, and a mama bird's protecting the nest from this green viper that's diving and twisting and trying to get at the babies. And that mother, oh my goodness, could teach a fighter pilot some uh, lessons <laughs> figure two i was amazed and and why it went viral is like it's just a little tiny bird and it's like <laughs> oh no you don't snake you know and it's just like and then the snake she wins she wins and you just this idea that look god is not hoping you guys perish He's wanting to protect you. Listen to the words you wouldn't listen. So he takes the bullhorn and he puts it right up to your head. <laughs> and he blows the horn. And yeah, it's a little deafening and a little off-putting to have a bullhorn right against your ear. But if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. I love when he says, listen, we came into Jerusalem on Psalm 118. And at the second coming, during the apocalypse, during Armageddon, when Iran, Russia, Syria, China come in to destroy Israel, in the last moments, they look up and they cry out, Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Romans chapter 11, verse 26, says the nation itself in that day, by and large, as hearts repent, they shall be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, harsh words for sure. We found ourselves in the story, yes, we pray for the grace to be able to let you do your work in our hearts and lives. God, that we are just less like Pharisees and more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.